Welcome to episode six of Turning the Goldfields Green. And today I'm joined by Eliza Tree on two topics. So this is our part two of protest. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in episode four, we heard from Eliza at, just before she headed up to Canberra to take part in the People's Climate Assembly gathering at Parliament House. Mm-hmm. And just this last weekend, Eliza was at the National Climate Emergency Summit in Melbourne, learning all sorts of wonderful things. So we're going to talk to her about both of those things. Yes, indeed. Hi, Eliza. Welcome. Hi, Ali. Thanks. Yeah. And in between those two chats with Eliza, I'm going to play you a little interview I did with Trace Bella about some alternative food finding methods (laughs) that might be interesting to people. But before any of that... Eliza, normally at the start of every show, I do an acknowledgement of country. Would you be willing to do today's one? Because I know that you're connected deep in your heart to to all things Indigenous and land. So I like to acknowledge that we're meeting on Jajaran country and that we acknowledge the elders and ancestors, past, present and emerging, and that what a great gift it is to share central Victoria and the beauty and spirit of this country and be so welcomed by the Jara people to their land and we acknowledge and appreciate that very much. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. The first topic for today of our two, I think, very exciting topics. I actually wanted to go to that summit this weekend, but I just could not fit it in. Yeah. Um, So I'm glad to have you to report back. But first, let's talk about Canberra and what people's climate assembly yes exactly so when we spoke a couple of weeks ago you it was before you'd left and there was a lot of anticipation about how huge this would be yeah well let's start we'll set the scene first in case people didn't listen to episode four and your previous interview let's talk about why people were going to canberra Yeah, well, there was a dual sort of thing going on. There was four days, which was called the People's Climate Assembly, which was a massive variety of groups, um, interest groups and activist groups who had put together the idea of having a an opportunity to share ideas and gather and network and they'd actually got a space at the front of the Parliament House on the lawns. I think they're called the Federation Lawns. So they had speakers and groups and all types of things going on. But also on the Tuesday the 4th, which was the first sitting day of Parliament for 2020, they decided they'd have an actual people's gathering uh, as a rally. And uh, when I'd heard about those two events, I thought, my gosh, this is going to be huge, you know, with the drought and the fires and everything else that was going on and the absolutely apparent climate emergency we're experiencing. I thought it was going to be massive. There was expectations of 100 or 200,000 people showing up. Yeah. And people were very excited about this idea of so many people showing up in Canberra. Yeah. But tell me what you found when you got there. Because I, I spoke to you on the morning of the 4th. You had, yep. you'd taken some beautiful photos of a bushfire sunrise. Fiery suns and all sorts of was, things. Yeah. And there was just a few tents on the lawn and I was expecting the full 
like the whole place camped out like it was summer holidays down at Lawn. Exactly. And <laughs> it wasn't like that. So how many people were you seeing at that point in time? Well, there was there were a few quite a few places that people were staying. Some people were billeted, some people stayed at Epic, and some of us camped uh, at the old tent, the tent embassy uh, near the old Parliament House, which was an amazing experience, I must say. And the people, the Aboriginal people there were very welcoming and it was beautiful. But yes, I expected there would be many, many more people. But one of the things that may have put people off was that there was really bad wildfires around mm. Canberra the day the people were planning to arrive and they'd been going for many weeks. Mm. Um, so there was probably a lot of people who were a bit put off actually travelling. Anxious yeah. to travel through that. Yeah. It's interesting because the fires this season's this summer's fires, which really started in October, November, so early, were the catalyst. They're the catalyst for this whole thing happening, but yeah. they're actually also the reason perhaps why some people couldn't make it. Yeah. So describe how, how the rest of the day went. Did more and more people arrive through the day and, and how many people were there in the end? Yes. Well, we think there was about 5,000 people there which is many, many less than we expected. Um, the other thing is that people are suggesting we might have been networking amongst the networked mm. and people forget to share the information outside of their known circles. Mm, sure. Um, so, And does that mean sort of that social media bubble as well where you, you're sharing things on your page and you expect the whole world to see it, but actually yes. because of algorithms and the way these things work, it's not. Abs- and absolutely. Yeah. So the old-fashioned idea of putting posters up everywhere and the media do you think there was outreach to media before the protest I imagine there was a fair amount of outreach mm. but there was certainly very very little reporting mm. which was very disappointing actually um yeah. not unexpected though I do feel true. like the media can yeah. be very wary of covering of covering too enthusiastically yeah things like this I'm allowed to because I'm running a sustainability show yes <laughs> <laughs> but regular media I think feels a bit cautious to in looking like they're promoting protests absolutely yes mm-hmm. it is really an awkward aspect and we don't know what to do about that we've what we do need to do is just get the Murdoch media to speak the truth And, I mean, I really believe once we declare climate emergency, we won't have to hedge around like this. We'll actually just say, this is the information. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to gather to express your concern about these issues, it's it's not politicised. It's it's just real. Yeah, Yeah, true. So what happened on the day? What did you do? Well, at the Parliament House, there was uh, the main stage had some really great speakers. I wish I had a list of them. <laughs> I, I hear Bob Brown was there. <laughs> yeah, Bob Brown. And he is such a, he is so beloved in yes. the movement and he's still very gracious and well-spoken and all of those good things, isn't he's he? He's very superb yeah. and, but also very passionate and he was great. There was firefighters, there were health professionals, quite many Indigenous people speaking about the upcoming referendum for treaty. There were lots of musicians. It was really quite lovely and fascinating and inspiring. Mm -hmm. And then we all followed many, many Red Rebels and encircled Parliament House. So what are Red Rebels? Tell me. Uh, Red Rebels are some people who are from Extinction Rebellion and their complete outfit is totally red and with quite strong face makeup and silent 
they are the silent witness. Brilliant. And I think there was maybe 40 or 50 Red Rebels. Are you a Red Rebel, Eliza? Just quietly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, was, I didn't rebel there. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. I, I remember you wore that outfit to the Mask Fashion Parade last year. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So we've got about six or eight Castlemaine Red Rebels, yep. part of our Extinction Rebellion group. Uh, which other people are very, very welcome to come and join as well, just mentioned. And then we all encircle Parliament House um, and then we're back to the lawns. And because actually we'd been asked not to take banners on the encircling of Parliament House, it really dissipated the energy. Okay. Uh, because people were compliant. It was just human beings standing there next to each other without messages, without, yeah. you know, big With, colourful things. And without too much chanting and things. There yeah. was a bit of chanting, but... They really did manage to dissipate that energy. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting choice of the organisers to make that a thing. That a call, yeah. Because there were so many groups, it felt like everybody just needed to cooperate with each other. And that's very much what the movement or movements are about, is that cooperative people's way of choosing and making decisions and people agree. You know, it's it's really quite interesting part of the non-violent movement the way the communication occurs and hopefully usually for the best yeah um, you know you can never predict these outcomes yeah true mm-hmm. and I guess it's always it's always learning because every action that you make is it's always a new situation isn't it you're absolutely. always just trying something for the first it's you never know what, exactly how it'll run what'll happen absolutely how, how the you, d- you don't know what security at Parliament House, how they're going to respond to things. Exactly. So. And there was a lot of security because they were expecting a lot more people too. Yeah. So, Did yeah, you make friends with them? Were you like patting the horses and stuff? Well, we didn't have any horses oh, on that day, which is good. great. But the police are certainly well armed. Yeah. Um, things like that. So um, that, was that noticeable to you? Yeah, a little bit. But also at the same time, the non-violence is the best way of humanising both us mm. and them. Yeah. Um, I'm... And we all speak with the police. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, mutual respect on a human level. Yeah, that's really important because there has it's, to be. There has to be. They are humans. They are humans. And you are humans. Yes. Yeah. And it keeps everybody safe. I think so too. To be honest. Yeah. They feel like they can communicate with you. Yep. Then they're going to be less inclined to feel like they have to use force. Yeah, or be reactive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really important and that is a very strong part of our message because, Mm. you know, we must rebel, we must stand up for what's going on, um, but we need to do it safely for everybody. Did you see any politicians? We had... Who do we have? Well, actually, probably the most inspiring ex-politician we had uh, was John Hewson, who came and spoke. Uh, He's great because he's the one who now speaks up and says, these politicians are defending the indefensible. And it is so true. And he knows because he used to be on the inside. Exactly. Um, it's, it's interesting. Did he talk about how how that played out for him through his career? Like, look, if he was able to not, he wasn't able to speak up while he was in. Yeah. To be honest, I was sort of quite busy during okay. some of the speeches. So, uh, but certainly that is his feeling: is that yes, he's more empowered to speak now than when he was in there. Mm. Interesting. Did you did you see anyone going into work, like anyone entering the building because it's the first day, sitting day of Parliament? Oh, yes. We'd, um, we'd yeah. been down at the – there was a thing called Polly Watch, which is we go to State Circle and Melbourne Avenue with all our banners, and that's the main entry where the politicians come in. So they all drive past and we have our banners and – Great. So they know we are here. Yeah. 
what type of influence or effect that has on them, we're still not sure. Yeah, of course. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, we saw plenty of politicians. And it turned out that was the first day back sitting for 2020 and they actually had a lot of time dedicated that day to the wildfires. Mm. But then on the following day, so the Wednesday, quite a large group of us went into Parliament for question time, which, when you sit through it, is absolutely appalling. Is it? I mean... The behaviour and the wastage of time and energy, and it's pretty, pretty poor. Yeah. Given that these people are supposed to be representing us, and they're getting paid a lot of money lot. to to waste time and yes, and sort yeah. of like do weird antics that's power yeah. plays. Oh, Mr. Speaker and blah blah. You know yeah. they crap on so much. <laughs> and in fact, when we were there, there was a ridiculous proposal put. And they rang the bells, they crossed the floor, they came back, they rang the bells again. Honestly, there was at least 30 minutes where absolutely nothing happened of any consequence. Mm. You know, we're sitting there watching that. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So you also, you've mentioned to me that there were some other things that were happening sort of in the background, some interesting people you met. Yes. And yep. things you were doing to support them in their particular protest. Yep. Well, there's an amazing fellow called Rob Bake and his partner Judith, and Rob has established little protest action, well, hopefully not so little, called Hungry for Climate Action. And as of last Thursday, he went on a one-week hunger strike. So we stayed, we were around to help support him and Judith and as much as we could. And it's really very strong what he's doing. He's got permission to set up a little place at the front of Parliament House, and he's there every day, and he's not eating at all. Obviously, still having. How long's he been doing that? Well, he did it for the first week, yep. and then some other people came and took over last Thursday, mm-hmm. and they'll be doing it through until this Thursday. Yeah, they're hoping that there will be people more widely who will yeah. be interested to take on the baton, because basically he and many others are feeling that until our government declares climate emergency, it's it's not good enough. We must protest, and we will, and we are, and we do. Yeah, interesting. I feel like, what do you think about that in terms of passing the baton on a hunger strike? Because I feel like the the threat of the hunger, well, not the threat, but the point of the hunger strike is that you are prepared to die for this cause. Yeah, well, there's... Even to hunger strike for one week, yeah. there is a massive amount of sacrifice involved. Of course. I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love food. So given that, I mean, yes, Gandhi and many other hunger strikers have done that, mm. but there's also there's many ways of doing a hunger strike. Mm. And Rob and his group, who mm. he's working closely with, believe that that's the most sustainable way that they can do it. Yeah. So that's his process. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, that issue of sustainability within a protest movement. And yeah. I think in my experience of having worked with different groups who, who are protesting for different causes yeah. through my life, I have noticed that some people are just so passionate about their cause that they will run themselves ragged. Yeah. But, and that means that they fall down and they're not actually able to continue pushing for what they really tr- they believe in so yeah. strongly. Yeah. And what, what do you think about that, that, that issue of personal sustainability as an activist? Oh, well, it's, it's a very tricky one to juggle. When you're passionate, you just do what you have to do, really. Yeah. But certainly with Rob, he feels that one week was going to be really great and then he's got a lot of other work that he needs to do mm-hmm. as an activist and to do that with energy, he actually does need to eat. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, but um, I really think that he's done a brilliant job establishing that yeah. and even the name itself, Hungry for Climate Action, yeah. is very powerful. So how were you supporting him and what were you doing to help? We just uh, were helping with some banners and the morning poly watch and keeping an eye on Judith and taking things here and there and yeah. just being around and taking photos. And A friend of mine came and took some photos on the morning, the final Thursday morning. Adam Bant came down from Parliament House yep. to speak with Rob yeah, and we got a friend who's a photographer to come and take photos and things like that. So yeah, yeah. it was just being there, being part of that little team. And they were camped with us as well, or we camped with them actually Yeah, great. at the Tent Embassy. And so at the end of it all, once you were leaving, how did you feel? Because I know on the morning that I spoke to you on the 4th, you were feeling a bit devastated that there weren't more, more people there. But I, I sense from what you're saying that you left feeling pretty great about the endeavour. So tell me yeah. how you felt as you were leaving. Yeah, well, during the time I was at in, in staying in Canberra, it had been very amazing doing a whole lot of work around the tent embassy and helping with Uncle Kev. So we got very involved in lots of things. Mm. But also I wrote a little bit of a poem, which I delivered in the Great Hall on my final morning. Great. So I Can we hear a little bit? Yeah, just a little just bit. A little I understand bit. it's a bit long. So it is a little bit we long. won't do the whole thing, but That's just fine. little snippets would be <laughs> yeah. great. Okay. So this is called My Country 2020, and it's dedicated to Dorothy McKellar and Greta Thunberg. This land we call Australia built on theft and lies. She's scorched and dried with raging fires. We can't believe our eyes. The extraordinary magnificence, ancient land and culture. This land of drought and flooding rains, so fine before we destroyed her. The scorching heat, past precedent, prolonged drought to such extremes. Towns running dry of water, millennium drought now 20 years. And it goes on for a few more pages yeah. so maybe what I'll do is I'll publish it somewhere yeah great yeah but I'll just read the final one which is the final stanza the final stanza Greta's words are clear and strong speaking for all in future unless we act right here right now the children will not forgive us yeah very true so yes, yeah, so I went up the steps of Parliament House in the Great Hall mm. and I spoke the first few stanzas of my poem and then the police came and gathered me up and took me downstairs to interview me and um, popped did, me back out. How did that feel? Were you feeling a bit nervous about that? No, I was really well prepared for it and I always speak a lot with the police so they, they're generally very, very good. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, so that was fine. Yeah. I had a good chat with them and I left them with a copy of the poem. great all right well we're going to come back in a few minutes and have a chat with eliza about what she's been doing this last weekend which is another very interesting thing the national climate emergency summit but before that a bit of a change of pace some light-hearted chat with one of my favorite people and her offbeat habits when we're talking about sustainability and climate change one topic that keeps recurring is about how reducing our reliance on systems beyond our control and reclaiming our agency in terms of food production is one of those systems. So the big supermarkets, really, we just walk in there and expect to see lots of fruit and veg. But what happens if all the systems collapse and suddenly there's no food available to us because there's no trucks, there's no boats, there's no planes carrying things all the way across the world? So in future episodes, are we covering the vital importance of developing and supporting local food production Um, because there are a lot of beautiful growers locally who really need our support and it's important 
it's a really important adaptation and future-proofing part of what sustainability and climate action is, is to support your local food networks. And we're so fortunate because the food grown locally is such great food. Yes. You know, grown in amazing soils with good care. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be talking about that in more detail in future episodes. But in the meantime, I have an interview with Trace Bella that I think plays to these themes. Okay, I'm with Trace Bella. <laughs> Locally famous, nationally famous, author and illustrator of children's books, including River Time and Rock Hopping. And very soon we'll be talking to her about her new latest release, but that's in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, one of the first things Trace and I did when we were getting to know each other was go out foraging for wild fruit from trees that were just out in the landscape. And we went walking across fields and up and down streets and Trace knew where all the fruit was that was not in people's gardens and wasn't being harvested. And now Trace has got this morning routine that she's going to explain to us. Oh yeah, well I've been waking up with the birds. So before the sun comes up, I've already got my bag packed. So I tell you what's in my bag. All right, tell us the items and then, but don't tell us what they're for. Well, I've got gaiters. What are gaiters? Gaiters. Uh, you put them on sort of around your shins and it, it stops prickles and snakes and stuff. Oh, that's a bit of a clue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I've got here long tongs. Tongs? Long ones, long tongs. <laughs> I've got in the side pocket here, I've got secateurs. Got a bit of a sound secretary. You won't be able to hear this one. This is a snake bandage. Well, I've got two snake bandages. And in here I've got this bit of uh, Tupperware. It's a long piece and it's got itself elastic onto a bag. And I've got this technique where I put it, oh, I've got it on backwards. (laughs) I put it under my arm and so, You see how I've got this tube under my arm? Yes. Right? And so then I get the long tongs. And should we try and guess what I'm doing? (laughs) And then in here is like multiple Tupperwares, but none of them are glass. I've got some really nice Tiffins from India. (laughs) They're actually from India? Yeah. Yeah, I sort out really good Tiffin over there. Oh, and I've got a little cap if I need it for the sun. But actually, the thing I'm doing, the secret thing I'm collecting... I normally finish before the sun gets too strong anyway. Yeah. So you don't need the hat that you do carry? Yeah, I probably don't need the hat because by then I've filled up all the Tupperware. Oh, I usually take a smoothie with me that I've made the night before as well. So you get up early in the morning before it's too hot and you go for a walk. Where do you go? I go on my bike. Okay, you go on the bike. Where to? I go down to the creek and there in front of me is drumroll. <laughs> massive, unfortunate, massive blackberry patches. <laughs> so, and they're really juicy at the moment. So, you know, get out there right now, people. And sorry, I shouldn't tell the secret because all the people will be going, oh, Trace, you shouldn't have told everyone. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. That's what I've got in my bag. This month, 
being February. So that is a brilliant system of harvesting wild blackberries, which is actually a massive pest in Australia. Farmers and people who are trying to get rid of pests in our bushlands are, are always trying to get rid of the blackberries, and they're very tenacious. We have Nathan with us who knows about such things, and he says that it's a weed of national significance. What does that actually mean? Uh, it's just a, it's the top list of weeds in Australia that are either environmental or agricultural pests. Yeah. And being of national significance means that it's really hard to get rid of? Uh, yeah, well, that's one of the problems with these significant weeds, yeah. I guess because it's there and it's so bad, until it's been dealt with, some of us are trying to take advantage of it. So my freezer is really chock-a-block full now and that should keep me going for quite a while. Yep. And also the other last thing I'll say about it is I really like going on blackberry picking dates with my buddies. Yeah. Like we can chat and pick and chat and pick and listen to the birds. So your technique, because blackberries are very thorny, your technique is... Um, to use the tongs to reach in and actually pick the berries with the tongs. Yeah, and you can turn, like the tongs are really good because you can turn the blackberry around, the little bit around and then get them from the other side without cutting yourself. And also um, I've got my secateurs if I see some really far in and I'm like kicking down the plant, poor thing. I'm like, I don't feel bad about kicking it down because it's such a pest. So I just can hack into it. And sometimes I've got an old old man kangaroo there having a graze near me. So we're grazing together. That's great. And I think that if you are taking the seeds of the weed of national significance and not letting those seeds get eaten by birds, yeah. you're actually helping out. Yeah. I mean, the birds are kind of in the middle, scoffing away. However, some of it does go down the sewerage pipe. <laughs> At your home? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That, of course, was Midnight Oil with Beds Are Burning, and that was Eliza's choice. Eliza, tell me about that song and you. Well, I just adore that song. It's so relevant, even though that came out in 1986, uh, relevant to this day. Um, and that was also the tour which I went on with Midnight Oil to the Central Desert. Did you now? Which was just amazing. Were you I, a little groupie? <laughs> well, kind of. Um, <laughs> but I did get a job as the cook for a, a big country who were doing a documentary on the oils tour. It was the Blackfella, Whitefella, Warumpi Band, Midnight Oil. Great. Outback tour. That would have been a brilliant tour. Well, it was incredible. I still think it was probably one of the best three weeks of my life. Mm. It's just completely amazing. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> so while we were listening to Trace Bella's interview and the Oils song, we were just discussing the fires in general. And actually just before this show, I was in the tea rooms here at Main FM and there's a newspaper, the Midland Express, from 
July, June or July last year, mm-hmm. so mid-2019. And it was just a tiny little snippet in the paper that said, the Bureau of Meteorology is predicting that because of the dryness of the season and this and that, it's going to be an earlier fire season and more severe. Mm-hmm. And that was just a tiny little snippet long before the fires started. And yep. it's so proven to be true. Well, Ross Garner was speaking about this in 2008. And he predicted it for 2020. 2020. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty scary. Even more sort of disturbing that our um, government, our parliament, won't declare climate emergency, yeah. even though it's absolutely apparent. That's and right. I must say we're still very grateful to our own Mount Alexander Council for actually declaring climate emergency on the 17th of December last year. Yeah. It was a brilliant move by our council. That was really so important. Great. Now, on the drive to Canberra or on the drive back, at some point you stopped in on some of the fire-affected areas yes. in New South Wales. Tell me what it was like standing in those forests. Well, it, it was pretty extraordinary, actually. We drove from Canberra up to the Kangaroo Valley where some of the fire had been through and very randomly taken out an occasional house and whatever – but because it had been raining for a few days, it was actually really green and lush wow. going through the Kangaroo Valley. And then uh, it was pouring with rain, with that cyclonic rains coming down the coast. So we'd gone from... Is this the same time that Sydney got flooded? Was that yes. that weekend? Yep. Wow. So they went from... What a contradiction. Absolute crazy heat, outrageous catastrophic fires to floods yeah. within... A week. And because everything had been burnt, there were mudslides and yep. terrible... Yeah. Really bad consequences from heavy rain coming on those fire-affected areas. So after being in the Kangaroo Valley, we then drove back down the south coast via Mogo and the Clyde Mountain, and it really was horrendous just seeing thousands of, of hectares burnt a very badly burnt countryside. Because you're a relatively well-travelled person. I know you you walked the Major Mitchell track. Was it walking or you just travelled it? I, I travelled it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, so you've seen bits of Australia. You understand what the country has looked like in the past. Yeah. And to see it in this state now after the fires, how did you feel? Well, it's it's horrendous, really. You, we hopped out quite a few times and walked into the forest. Mm. Um, and it's very silent. There's, it's just so silent. And desolate and grey, yeah, grey, brown, black. Mm. Um, and they, there'd been a little bit of rain this week, so there was a few shoots coming back, and it is extraordinary to see green in that blackness. Yeah. Um, but also, I was looking at the ground, and the only thing we saw was a couple of ants mm. and a lizard, and yeah, yeah, it's devastated. And the thing is, because the fire burnt so hot, and the earth was so dry Mm. and it was so you know really really wildfire it burnt a lot hotter than it should and particularly in the valleys because normally those valleys hold some moisture but at the moment all they held was leaf litter so even the gullies burnt really badly but I will tell you one really cute story apparently there's a thing called wombat wells yes and the wombats are really important part of the ecology because they come along and they they dig their burrows so sometimes other animals are able to shelter in the burrows during the firestorm but then also afterwards they go back and they dig for water and that can often provide a source of water for birds, plants, animals. So it's amazing, isn't it? It's uh, the wombat is um, a community. <laughs> he's not he, the wombats are actually doing it for themselves, but it has this flow-on effect. Beautiful community around. effect. It's yeah. lovely. Yeah. yeah. 
So we do want to spend the last half of the show, we've got about 20 minutes left Mm -hmm. to talk about the uh, National Climate Emergency Summit, which is part of a month-long sustainability festival, which has been happening in Melbourne, and it's run by the Victorian government, I believe, the sustainability I think side so. of yep. the Victorian it's a government. whole sustainability festival. Yeah. yeah. So, but you went to this uh, summit, which was a full-on weekend of talks and panels and discussions and workshops. Yeah. So, tell me a bit about it. Well, as you say, it had a really great diversity of speakers and subjects and topics. It was it was an extraordinary gathering because it was at the Melbourne Town Hall, which is a very beautiful venue, actually. And we had all sorts of people: Peter Garrett, Kerry O'Brien, Peter Garrett. Um, yeah. Do you uh-huh. still have a crush on him? Oh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, look, there were so many people. So what was a highlight for you? What was one, What was something that you just felt, oh, my life is better because I saw this or heard this? Or yeah. Well, one of the panels that they had um, had on was a really great one where I think it was Nick Kelty, the fire officer, Peter Garrett, Zali Steggles and someone else had a discussion and – it was just so inspiring having Zali there mm. because she's calling for a conscience vote mm. um, from Parliament, which is... She's an independent, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she is. She was the one that unseated Abbott yeah, for no. his nice safe seat. Um, and she is extraordinary. She's She seems very well spoken. Like every time I've seen her, she's just very articulate and well presented and can communicate well. To yeah. people, she doesn't do politician speak exactly. The way some politicians I think she's do. got some really great qualities and attributes. Mm. She was an Olympic athlete, wow. she's a solicitor or uh, definitely a lawyer. Oh my god, she's good at everything, isn't yeah, she? Maybe even a barrister. Does um, she play music beautifully or something? Probably, as well? yeah, <laughs> she'll be incredible. Yeah. And and she's a woman, yeah, and um, she's really going in there with some very and she's a big part of her. Oh, she's a mother. And part of a strong part of her community, so it's really great elements to have in yeah. a polit- politician. Yeah. So, what happened on that panel discussion? Well, they were speaking about how you know the ridiculousness that our government is still in resistance, and they were really saying you know we should be just activating as if this was a war, you know, going into war footing, setting up a super department, and really pulling together all the knowledge, mm. the science, the capacity, which is out here in our communities and people who are waiting to engage in creating the future in a positive way. Mm. So on many levels there was there's a great deal of not despair because we're all getting too active to allow despair to take over. I think there's a there's a very profound mix of amongst across all the people who are yeah. thinking and feeling this and people are at different stages so some people are stuck yeah. in despair but others are taking action which as you mentioned in your interview in episode four is the antidote to despair yeah so doing something anything can help you just feel like it's not just this black hole of nothingness that you can can't do anything about yeah and, and it, it can feel that way especially in australia with our politicians being so resistant well that caused a terrible paralysis yeah it's every nobody knows which way to turn they're saying now that 70 or 80 percent of Australians have been affected by the fires because there's always the flow on effects. People are waking up mm. and saying we've got to do something and it's not good enough just to leap into adaption and resilience. Yeah. We need to start at the beginning, which is speak the truth and declare a climate and ecological emergency. Can I ask you a question which may be tricky to answer? <laughs> and it, I just feel like in Australia, perhaps, there's been this messaging that, oh, you know, all the small islands will flood because 
of the sea levels rising. And that's what we've heard climate change being as about oceans rising. And this has been the message since the 80s. And it's like, oh, those poor Pacific Islanders. But we'll be okay. Yeah. And until something like the fires happen, maybe Australians have been quite complacent across the board, feeling like it won't really affect us. We're quite wealthy as a nation. We're well protected and we'll keep the refugees out. That seems like people have been afraid that the refugees are the main threat as opposed to climate change actually being the main threat. Yes, that's right. And our treatment of refugees has been appalling and quite horrific for so many years through so many different governments have maintained this horrendous, but we might be the refugees well, possibly. We, we could be climate refugees one day. And maybe people are starting to realise that if a nation like Australia, which is wealthy, is being destroyed by things that can be linked to climate change, there may not be countries left to run to. And so then what do we do? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Many Everybody's thinking about it in all different kind of ways. Mm. I'm sort of thinking about it in just terms of I, I don't even want to allow it to get to that point. No. No. I don't think we should. But, but we should. I can't even go down that thought track. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just tend to go, yep, we've just got to start building what we can mm. in our communities, which is what we're doing. We're very fortunate in central Victoria already. Hepburn Shire has declared climate emergency at quite a few different shires in yeah. central Vic, which I think helps strengthen how we then engage in resilience and as well. There are, I mean, part of why this show is... The show is called Turning the Goldfields Green, but it's part of the saltgrass sort of series of productions that I'm making, which are about climate change and the climate emergency. And I chose saltgrass because I feel like, and I've heard a lot of people repeat this to me in their own ways, that the answer to this in Australia is a grassroots movement. Yeah. It's about people doing it in their local communities, taking action, making things happen where they can within their sphere of influence before they get approvals. Like you don't have to wait for the government to say that we have to take this seriously. People can take it seriously right now and they are and they have been doing it for decades. You can see that here in Castlemaine. Oh, absolutely. I suppose the thing is once they declare the climate emergency and we activate as a broader group then we can also put some resources where they're needed yeah absolutely uh, yeah and we, we we mess i'm not saying we don't need the government to turn around we absolutely do yeah but it's really important that people start yes now. and and places like matt alexander you know the sustainability group mm. and so many and different great groups and doing wind and fantastic all of these work. brilliant groups and even the land care groups you know they're oh, so gosh, yes. vital yeah. to keeping our landscape healthy yeah the next stage is supporting these groups even more so they can really engage mm. because it takes a lot of resources <laughs> yeah, it does. people are doing a lot lot of volunteer work it's true and um yeah, yeah. to support that would be really great all right, let's go yep. back to the conference yep. where you spent your weekend. Were you there for the whole time? Yeah, well, it was actually just the Friday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. And the Saturday afternoon was also extremely exciting because the final plenary session, they actually announced a, t- a climate declaration. Who announced it? That was Carmen Lawrence and Tim Costello. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was really brilliant. And so it's sort of basically just saying, okay, well, the government hasn't done this yet. But we are. We're yeah. saying this is a climate emergency. We're talking about the impacts of climate disruption. We're talking about the failure of leadership. We're talking about strengthening democracy and addressing the climate threat. And then coming to the adaptation and resilience. 
So this um, climate declaration is actually online on the National Climate Emergency Summit Facebook site and homepage. Yep. So yes, that's worth a look. But also there's actually quite a few of the different workshops and speeches are on that site as well. But it was just really proactive and by the end of it, every there was a standing ovation where you could just feel such relief yeah. of so many people coming together and saying, yes, this is possible, we will do it and we are doing it. Yeah. And we're not sure how many minutes, days or weeks it might take for the government to come on board, but um, some of us are not prepared to wait very much longer. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that's that's great. And did you see any familiar faces there? Other people from our region? Yes, there was quite a few Kasamanis. And um, I know that Taryn uh, spoke from Hepburn Wind. She was one of the panel. She was one of the presenters. Oh, she may have spoken at one of the. There was some breakaway yeah. groups. Yeah. At different. Yeah, there were some main sessions and breakaway. And so I didn't get to see. No, you can't go to everything at events like that. You want to go to every single session, but you really can't. Absolutely, it's just not possible. <laughs> you can't be in two rooms at once. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, that's exciting. And there are more and more conferences and summits and things happening on the theme of sustainability. I know there's a leadership in sustainability coming up, which is more corporate and for business yep. leaders. And yes. so there's sort of specific ones. And it seems to be emerging as more and more at every level of the society, people are recognising, oh, we really actually need to pay attention to this. Yes. Yep. And the sooner we do, actually, so much the better. Yeah. Uh, because we don't need to wait another year and have another summer like this. Mm. I mean, even just preparing for longer, hotter summers is something that we need to think about absolutely and work towards and yeah. but also you know making the necessary changes so that we can avert 1.5 degree warming yeah. you know or 2 degree warming it's yeah. apparently only at 1.1 at the moment and we yeah, saw from that. pre-industrial levels this is so yeah we've we've already gone a fair way and we're seeing the results we really are yeah so is there anything else to say about the summit? Uh, let me just have a quick look here. The main thing is that there's lots of websites to look at yeah. and information. So what I will available. do, um, what I try and do with this show is if there have been references to books or websites or links, I put them in the podcast, in the notes under the podcast. Great. So if you go to saltgrass.podbean.com, you can find this episode in a couple of hours, I hope, once I've edited it, <laughs> and um, you'll be able to download those links and, and and find the connection. So we'll put a link to the summit and to some of the speeches and presentations you're talking about. Right, yeah. And if there's one for the uh, People's Climate Assembly Assembly. in Canberra, we can do that. And um, Eliza Tree is also a very beautiful uh, painter and visual artist, which has greatly contributed to your banner-making efforts, I will say. Oh, it so has. You do such beautiful (laughs) banners for your protests. So we'll put a link to her website as well if you've got one. Cool. Yep. Yeah, great. All right. Well, I think that's about it for us today. You have been listening to Main FM 94.9. This is Turning the Goldfields Green. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Eliza. Bye. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots, Grassroots change. change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.
My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may or may not read your email on the show and may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email.